Will you turn in your Bibles to 3 John, 3 John, and 3 John is located at the very end of your Bible, so if you just turn to the back, you will find 3 John, uh, just the third from the final book to your New Testament. These guys have some Bibles, we want everybody to be able to follow along, so if you need one, get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you that's marked at 3 John, and you can keep that Bible as our gift to you, we want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. So let me ask parents, and I ask as a parent, so I'm asking myself as well. What do you want most for your children? Now try to answer that question honestly, rather than like you're in church and being asked by a pastor. If a friend asked this coming week, how are your children doing? What would be your immediate response? For most of us, it would be that they're healthy, doing well at school, or sports, or their career. If married, they have a nice family. The grandkids are so very cute. And these are all, of course, very good things, for which we are to be grateful if they describe our children's circumstances. We're going to see this kind of thing, these kinds of things mentioned in our passage today, in fact. But note, again, my first question. What do you want most for your children? These are good things for you to want, but there is one thing that's to be desired above all the rest, says God's Word. Take a look at verse number 4 of 3 John. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you again for this blessed day. We thank you that we can set it a time, set it aside as a time to honor our ladies and our mothers and to be challenged as parents, both fathers and mothers, and as spiritual parents. Lord God, we need your grace every moment of every day. The task of rearing the next generation is beyond any of us. And so we ask you to help us as we look at your word, and that we will leave this place challenged, but also comforted by the call of the gospel. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as we look at how the principles of this particular passage, 3 John and verse number 4, how those principles apply to the task of parenting on this Mother's Day, I need to explain the context because if you read the verses just before and after, it's a little out of the ordinary from what you normally see in a letter in the Bible. And most of you know that most of the books in your New Testament are really letters that were written to churches or to individuals. And this is a very short letter of only 13 verses that we call 3 John because it's the third letter that John, that John wrote. But it's a bit different than the other letters in the Bible. And the uniqueness begins with the fact that the author of the letter is unidentified within its words. It starts in verse number 1. Take a look. With just the words, the elder. Now, when you're known simply as the elder... You have no need to identify yourself. You're someone who is obviously well-known. 
we're going to see who this person is in just a bit. But he is called the elder because elder is a title in the Bible for leaders in the church. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that elders direct the affairs of the church. And the one who wrote this letter is a special kind of elder because he was not directing the affairs of just one church, but several churches. Now, how do we know this? Well, because 3 John implies that there was a 2 John, and 2 John implies that there was a 1st. And so there's these two other letters written by this uh, uh, author who calls himself the elder. And in 2 John, he identifies himself the same way, chapter 1 and verse 1, as the elder. But that letter, 2 John, is written, it says in verse number 2 there, in fact, it's just probably on the opposite page of where you are right now, 2 John, because it also is just a few verses. So take a look in verse 2 of 2 John. It's written to the lady chosen by God. So the elder has written 3 John that we're going to consider, but also written 2 John and addressed 2 John to the lady chosen by God. Now, now who or what is that? Well, it turns out that that is a reference to a church, a, a, a local assembly of believers like, like this. Now, why is the church referred to as the lady chosen by God? Well, it's because the Bible often uses feminine references to refer to God's bride, the church. Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then notice verse 13 of Second, Second John. Verse 13 says this, the children of your sister who is, and we could supply also chosen by God, send their greetings. So the elder, who we'll identify shortly, is writing to a church in his letter called Second John, and the members of the church are referred to as children in a family. In this case, children in the family of God. And so that's why Second John, again, look at verse 4, says, It has given me great joy to find some of your children, that is, members of the church, walking in the truth. But the members of the church are not only children of God's household in general, the elder sees them as his own children, in a sense. I mean, 2 John and verse 4 that we just read, he says, it brings me joy that your children are walking in the truth. But now in 3 John 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And this is because he was probably responsible for the existence of those churches. Because as a church planter, he did what we see the Apostle Paul. If you're familiar with your New Testament at all, you know that the fifth book in your New Testament is called the Acts of the Apostles, the actions, the activities of Jesus' first followers. And one of those chief first followers was one named Paul. And what he did was go about the Roman Empire from city to city proclaiming the gospel and seeing people come to Christ and gathering them in churches in various cities. And so the members of now these churches to whom the elder is writing, 
are his spiritual children in the sense that he is their spiritual parent. Many of them had come to Christ and grown in Christ through his ministry, and he thought of them as his own children. We find this kind of spiritual mentor, spiritual parentage mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Philippians chapter 2. The aforementioned Paul had a protege named Timothy, and he says, Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And so the elder is a leader in the church. But he's not just a leader in one church, but he's over several because he's also what the Bible calls an apostle. In particular, he is the Apostle John, and thus the name Third John. Well, the books are, how is it that we know that John is the one who wrote these since he doesn't give his name? He just calls himself the, the elder. Well, the books are named for John because the language in these three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is very much like a fourth book written by him that we call the Gospel of John. The fourth book in your New Testament is the Gospel of John. 22 chapters of his account of having walked with and been taught by Jesus as the beloved follower, the beloved disciple. And so he wrote that book, and then he wrote these three letters, and the language in these three letters is very much like the Gospel of John, thus most certainly identifying the Apostle John as the writer of this letter. And John was one of Jesus' original 12 followers. And those 12 were given special authority to establish the church after Jesus completed his time on earth, was raised from the grave, and ascended back to the Father. The Bible says that the church was, in Ephesians chapter 2, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And so John is one of those apostles who established the church, went about from city to city, planting churches, giving the truth that he had received from Jesus. And now that he is putting uh, pen to, pa- to papyrus for, uh, in, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to instruct and build up those churches. And so the apostles spread out in various parts of the empire, preaching the gospel, seeing people come to Christ, gathering them in churches in those cities, and those churches often met in the homes of individual members. And so we see references to that, the church meeting in homes throughout the New Testament. One such is in Romans 16. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church that meets at their house. You find another reference in another short letter in your New Testament called Philemon. The letter was written to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and to the church that meets in your home. And so they spread out throughout the empire, but hear this. Whenever the truth goes forward, error is not far behind. There will always be those who seek to deceive and to bring error into the church. And the same thing happened with the apostles. And this happened in John's ministry. And as a result, he's having to write these letters now back to instruct them on the way that they had been taught and to encourage them and warn them not to follow the way of error that has been introduced since his departure. 
Second John, the letter of Second John, is written to warn against taking in false teachers. And that's because these teachers were itinerant, and they would go from one city to another, and they didn't have holiday inns and ramadas and so on to stay in. And so they would stay when they were in these cities, in the homes of other Christians. And yet some of them were false teachers, and Christians wondered what to do. They're coming in the name of Jesus, but they're teaching foreign things, things that you did not teach us, John. What do we do? We want to show love. We want to be hospitable. And John writes in Second John, that you are not to take in false teachers. And 3 John, our letter, is written to encourage hospitality to godly leaders. 2 John is written to a church. 3 John is written to a leader in a church, a man named Gaius, that otherwise we know nothing about. So the elder to Gaius, and now Gaius, I am encouraging you to show the love of Christ to those who are carrying forward the work of Christ. And the word love is used three times in the first 11 words of this letter. Now take a look at the first two verses again. The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now in that first verse, you see the word love in English, so that's obvious, but I've said it's used three times in the first 11 Greek words from which this was translated. Where do, you see, where do we see three of those? Well, the word that's translated dear friend is a form of the word agape. Many of you are familiar with that Greek word, which is the New Testament's most oft-used word for love, agape. And then agape is used in the phrase, whom I love in the truth. So, my dear friend, or loved one, or beloved one. And then at the beginning of verse 2, dear friend, again, beloved one, agape. Three times in the first 11 words of this letter. And these, this, the theme of this letter is about how to show love properly. And in the opening verses, John who wrote it says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So what is this love that generates a commitment to truth that is to be the greatest joy of, yes, pastors and apostles, but of parents as well? We have an outline inserted for you in your program. I invite you to take a look at that. Where we see, first of all, that love is this. Love is... Love is doing, doing. The word used for God's love in your New Testament is agape, and it's used three times here in just the opening words of this passage. And the New Testament was first written in the Greek language, later translated into English, and and Greek had several different words to explain this concept of love. Two of them are used in the New Testament. Sometimes they were used interchangeably. Sometimes they were used in ways that highlighted various aspects of love. One of those Greek words is one, uh, 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 the Greek word philos. So Philadelphia. (laughs) Delphos means brother in Greek. Philos means love. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. If you've ever been to the city of Philadelphia, which I have been to several times, it is misnamed, undoubtedly. But philos 
refers to relational love on a horizontal level most often. There's another Greek word, eros, which refers to romantic love. We get erotic from that. That's a word that's not used in the New Testament, but was common in New Testament times. But the most common New Testament word for love is the one used three times in the opening words of 3 John, and that is agape. And it was used to communicate the basic nature of true, legitimate love. It was the foundation of all types of love. For a relationship or romance to be legitimately called love, it must share in the characteristics of agape. So what does the Bible tell us then about God's love, about agape love? Well, it tells us that God's love is primarily an act of the will, primarily an act of the will, and that's why I say love in your outline is doing. It's primarily an act of the will and not primarily an emotion. Now, it's not devoid of emotion. It's certainly not devoid of of motivation, but it is primarily an act of the will. Feelings are changeable from one day to the next, and when love is defined in terms of feeling, it too is changeable. Love certainly affects the emotions, but the two should not be confused. Biblical love is not merely a feeling, but rather a choice. And so God says to His people in the first part of your Bible in Hosea, I will heal their waywardness and I will love them freely. I will choose to love them freely even though they are, they are wayward. And so God's love is primarily an act of the will, a choice to love. And it's also agape love is sacrificial. Our version of love, our culture's version of love, the popular conception of it tends to be selfish. It's preoccupied with receiving rather than giving. But true godly love requires giving, sacrificing oneself for the benefit of another. And the supreme example of the self-sacrificial nature of genuine love is God's gift of His Son for our salvation. And so the most well-known verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, God so loved the world. What did He do? He did something, right? Love is doing. God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, this is the means by which we can have salvation. But then the Bible tells us elsewhere in John, who wrote the Gospel of John, where we find John 3.16, in his first letter, 1 John 3.16, says this directly to us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so love is primarily, love is doing, love is a choice, an act of the will, and a self-sacrificial act and actions on the part of another and for their benefit. Now, Love is not found merely in the act. The Bible tells us in a passage we're going to see in just a moment that I can do all sorts of things and still be devoid of love. I not only need to do them, I need to want to do them for your benefit, for the benefit of another. 1 Corinthians 13 is often called in the Bible the love chapter. It's the one that famously says love is patient and love is kind and so on. But in the opening verses of that passage, it says this, If I give all I possess to the poor, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Notice, I could give, I could do all of that, 
and still not have love. So I do. Love is, first and foremost, primarily a choice, and it is doing, but I also need to be motivated and want to do that. And so the end of verse 1, in 3 John, the elder, John, to my dear friend, beloved one, Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And so in your first point in your outline, we've seen that love is, is doing. Let me encourage you to write next to that. Next to love is doing, that truth provides the definition of love. Love is doing. And it is truth that provides us with the definition of what love is. So I can't just make up what I think love is. Truth provides what love truly is. And we have seen from God's Word what agape love, God's love, is like, that we are to emulate. So love is doing, and it is truth that provides the definition of love. And that's why John, when he writes to the beloved one Gaius, he says, whom I love, notice, in the truth. So love is doing, secondly in your outline, love is doing, but it's doing what is in the interest of another doing what's in the interest of another. Verse 2 says, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along. And when it says good health, we, it's from a Greek word. We get our English word hygiene from it. Dr. Luke, Luke, one of the early followers of, of Christ, uh, wrote the book of Luke in your New Testament and also the book of Acts. But he was a, a physician. Dr. Luke uses the same Greek word to refer to those who are fit and well or who are safe and sound. And so it clearly refers to physical well-being. So John, who loves Gaius in the truth, desires what's in his interest and what's in his interest is indeed that he enjoy physical well-being. And he prays that and desires that for him. And he says in verse 2 as well, and that all may go well with you. And that phrase, all may go well with you, is that you will literally have, have a good journey. That all may go well means that you will have a good journey. It refers to having desirable circumstances as you go through life. And so here John is praying and desires for this one he loves, that he'll have good health, physical health, and that he'll have favorable circumstances in life. Love is doing, and it's the truth that gives me the definition of love. But love is doing what's in the interest of another. And these kinds of things, physical well-being, favorable circumstances, these are all in the interest of of another, and they are good for us to desire and even for us to try to implement, to try to supply in the lives of others. And so truth, the Bible tells me what it is I'm to do in order to see these good things in the lives of those that I love. So Jesus said in Luke 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, We'll give him a snake instead. Now, you know, the diet back in those days was different, right? So, I don't know the last time you had your kid ask for a fish. The next one is asking for an egg, okay? 
but just they're asking for something that they want and is desirable. And how many of you would then replace that by giving a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give a scorpion. You know how to give good gifts to your children. And so we want to give what our, our children need, and we, we want to give to our children because we love them, even from time to time, what it is they want, even if they don't absolutely need it. And this keeps us from being stingy or harsh with our children. We want good things for them. But friends, they need more than food and clothing and shelter. The Bible teaches that they also need things like training and discipline. And if we love them, we will want to see that implemented in their lives as well. So Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 says, to bring them, our children, up in the training, that's the word for discipline in your New Testament, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. On Father's Day, parents, we're going to be looking at that passage next, next month. And so that's, that word training is the same word for discipline in your New Testament. It refers to instruction with teeth in it. And God, because He loves us, supplies discipline in our lives, that which, we, that which we need. Hebrews chapter 12 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so love and the truth that defines love tells me what is in the interest of another. Their physical well-being, but also the discipline and training that they need. But truth also tells us and dictates for us what we will not do as we seek to love those God has placed in our charge, especially our children. And we're going to look at a few passages in that regard. But I have found over the years that especially mothers, because of your tender hearts and your sensitivity to your children, you can be easily run over by a wayward child who is taking advantage of you. I've seen this over and over go with, with godly mothers because their definition of love is he or she is my son or daughter. And so whatever they ask for, whatever they think they need, I must seek to supply. And it surprises people when I point out to them that God says otherwise. That is, God defines love in the truth. The truth tells us, yes, what we, the kinds of things we do, but it also tells us the kinds of things that we're to refrain from. Notice what 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 says. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Does that surprise you as a verse in the Bible? And yet, and I don't know this of anyone here, but I've seen it over and over. As a matter of fact, I've seen it in my own family. Where you, have, where you have parents who dearly love their children, but their definition of love is not coming from the truth. And as a result, they are indulging their children. And as they indulge their children, who refuse to do the things that they have been taught and the things that are actually best for them, are actually supplying them as they go in a wrong direction. And God says very directly to us, 1 Timothy chapter 5, do not share in the sins of others. You see, dear parent, beloved parent, you may be supplying your child 
with what he or she wants to move in exactly the opposite direction that they ought to go. And understanding that love is defined by truth, and truth tells us, yes, what we do, but it also tells us what we will not do, this keeps us from being permissive to the harm and the detriment of our children. And so your second point in your outline is love is doing what is in the interest of another, and I encourage you to write next to that point. Truth provides the parameters of love. Truth defines love, point one, love is doing, but it also provides the parameters of love. What is in the interest of another? How do I know what's in the interest of another? The truth tells us that. God tells us that. It is right for us to provide for our children's well-being, pray that they'll be well physically, and that things will generally go well with them. It's good for us to pray for and endeavor toward those things, but there is something far greater. And that's the last point in your outline. Love is doing not only what is in the interest of another, but what is in the very best interest of another. And what is that? Verse 3 of 3 John. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Love is doing what is in the very best interest of another. Bear with me as I read a fairly lengthy excerpt from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, as he spoke on this very passage. And hear his convicting and eloquent words. I fear that many, even among professors of religion, could not truthfully repeat my text, his text being, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. They look for other joy in their children and care little whether they are walking in truth or no. They joy in them if they are healthy in body, but they are not saddened though the leprosy of sin remains upon them. They joy in their comely looks and do not inquire whether they have found favor in the sight of the Lord. Put the girl's feet in silver slippers, and many heads of families will never raise the question as to whether she walked in the broad or the narrow road. It is very grievous to some to see how some professedly Christian parents are satisfied so long as their children display cleverness in learning, sharpness in business, although they show no signs of a renewed nature. If they pass their examinations with credit and promise to be well fitted for the world's battle, their parents forget that there is a superior conflict involving a higher crown for which the child will need to be fitted by divine grace and armed with the whole armor of God. Alas, our children lose the crown of life. If our children lose the crown of life, it will be but a small consolation that they have won the laurels of literature and art. Many who ought to know better think themselves superlatively blessed in their children if they become rich, if they marry well, if they strike out into profitable enterprises in trade, or if they attain eminence in the profession which they've espoused. Their parents will go to their beds rejoicing and awake perfectly satisfied, though their boys are hastening down to hell. And if they are also making money by the bushel, the parents are fine. 
They have no greater joy than that their children are having their portion in this life and laying up treasure where rust corrupts. Though neither their sons nor daughters show any signs of the new birth, give no evidence of being rich towards God, manifest no traces of electing love or redeeming grace or the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, and yet there are parents who are content with their condition. And then he says, now I can only say of such professing parents, and he says this very convicting, that they have need to question whether they be Christian at all. And if they will not question it themselves, they must give some, give some of us leave to hold it in serious debate. When a man's heart is really right with God, and he himself has been saved from the wrath to come and is living in the light of his heavenly Father's countenance, it is certain that he is anxious about his children's souls, prizes their immortal natures, and feels that nothing could give him greater joy than to hear that his children walk in truth. Judge yourselves then, beloved, this morning, by the gentle but searching test of the text. If you are professing Christians, but cannot say that you have no greater joy than the conversion of your children, you have reason to question whether you ought to have made such a profession at all. It's deeply convicting for me. I ask at the beginning, how are our children doing? What do you want most for your children? And if we're honest, the first things that often come to mind are the kinds of things that Charles Spurgeon listed. So if love is doing what is in the best interest, what is best for our children? And I say in your outline, knowing the truth is best. You know, to have this joy that our children are walking in the truth, it means as a prerequisite, they have to know the truth. But of course, prerequisite to that is that we have to know the truth. If they're going to know the truth, we have to know the truth. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get get up. The truth is, friends, we can't give what we don't have. But you have at your disposal the ability to attain knowledge of God's Word that you can in turn pass on and impress upon your children. God has blessed you to live in a place where there are gospel preaching and Bible teaching kinds of places. This is one such place, not the only one. This may not be the church for you. That's fine. But dear parent, today, on this day, when we think about the awesome responsibility and blessing of parenthood, please consider whether or not you are aligned with a church where you can learn God's Word and instill what you have learned in the lives of your children. Knowing the truth is best. And then, not just knowing the truth, And very often our young people are content and their parents are content if the kids know the truth. If they've come to Sunday school enough, if they've come to a Wednesday program enough to hear the rudiments of the gospel, to have prayed a prayer when they were young, whether or not now they follow up by living that seems to be optional. But notice what John says. I have no greater joy 
than to hear that my children, now notice this, are walking in the truth. That word walking is the word for lifestyle, that they are living in the truth. And so it's not just, I took them to Sunday school enough so that they could hear the elementary truths of the faith, that's all good, but we want our desire is for them to implement that, to see them living that way. And just like you can't give them what you don't know, you can't model for them what you don't do. As parents, if we truly desire to see and have no greater joy than to see our children living out the truth, then it means that we must model that living out that truth is most important to us. And so next to point number three, I encourage you to write this. Truth provides the goal of love. Truth provides the goal of love. And what's the goal of love? That they should become acquainted with the truth and that they should live in the truth and that they should grow then to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and all of their mind and all of their soul and to give themselves to them. As we conclude, I said at the beginning, I said in my comments early on in our time together, All of us are parents in the household of God. God has called us, whether you have biological children or not, the children that God brings into our circle of influence are our responsibility, primarily those in whose home they live, of course. But we have a partnership together to see them grow and be nurtured in the Lord. And so we are to be, all of us, spiritual parents to all of our children. They should be able to look at the adults in this family of God and say, I want to be like him, I want to be like her. That's someone who cares about me and prays for me and loves me and whose life I can emulate because they walk in the truth. That's why I've titled this message, you see at the top of the outline, God Parents. And that's what all of us are, whether we have biological children or not. And those of us who have biological children, our first and highest priority is not their physical well-being, as good as that is. It is, says John, no greater joy than to see our children walking in the truth. It is their spiritual interest that is most important. And so I recommend that you align yourself with a place where you can be resourced to help you know the truth and learn to live the truth and so that you can see that by God's grace instilled in your children as as well. We have resources available for you, both of people and of materials, people who are in the same battle that you are in, with whom you need to rub shoulders so that you can iron sharpen iron and help each other in this awesome task of raising the next generation for Jesus so that they walk in the truth. You need the resources of other brothers and sisters and parents, godparents. You also need good materials written by others. We have a list of materials for you, categorized by whatever age your children are in, And wherever your struggle is, in order to put those in your hands, you can get that list at our, our resource center. And let me just say to our young people, now most of our young people are out in their own worship service right now. So teens and above are are in here. But let me say to you, or if you're a young adult, dear young person, think about what it means, just think about what it means to be a parent. 
and think about how dearly your mother and your father love you. And think about how it breaks their heart if you reject what they're attempting to teach you. If you go in the opposite direction of what they are trying to instill in you. And as you think of that, if there's any spiritual life at all, it will convict your heart. But more than that, think of how it breaks the heart of God the Father. To see children that he loves greater than John or greater than your parents ever could go in a direction other than what he has described in the truth that is the Word of God. And I pray that you will be moved to come back to the God of your father and the God of your mother. So what do we do? How do we end this? We've got to be connected, first of all, every last one of us, parents, children. We've got to be vitally connected to Jesus. And how does that happen? Jesus has made provision for us to be connected to him, God the Son, to be connected to God. He's done that by showing us in the truth our condition that we are sinners, every last one of us. He's done that by doing the work that we can't do for ourselves. He lived the life, as Pastor Matt said, of perfect righteousness that gets applied to us. He died the death that we deserve, paying the penalty for our sin. And so recognize that Jesus died for you and that Jesus lived for you. And receive Jesus Christ into your life, repenting of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I want to go your way, not my way. That's what repent means. And then from your heart to God, you ask him to change you from the inside out and to give you what only Jesus can give, full pardon because of his death on the cross, absolute righteousness because of his perfect life lived when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And parents, what do we need? If we've been connected to Jesus, and I don't assume that, you can be connected to Jesus right now, but if you have been, what do you need? You need to be regularly, daily, vitally reconnecting with Jesus every, every day, every moment of every day. Dear parent, and I'm going to quit, but dear friends, I say to you, as John the Elder said to Gaius and to the church to whom he wrote in the letter of 2 John, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. And dear friend, you and I don't have time. We don't have time to mess around with lesser things. God has called us to higher things. And we've been given the heavenly calling of raising our children, those in our homes and those in our church as a whole. We need to be renewed and reconnecting with Jesus every moment of every day in order for that to happen. Let's bow before him. Lord, we ask for your aid at the beginning. We need it every moment. We need your grace. We need your spirit. We need your power. We are not equal to these things. I am not. We are not in our homes, but you most certainly are. And Lord, you desire to see this in our children. You desire to see this in every person who is your child in your church and then extend it into our families and at large in the body of Christ. And so, Lord, help us. We, we, we ask for it. Help us Monday through Saturday in our homes to teach Jesus. Help us Monday through Saturday in our homes to model Jesus. 
And help us, Lord, in our church to see that indeed it takes a church to raise a child. And help us each to be committed to seeing the next generation committed to Jesus. But Lord, it requires change in our own hearts. Thank you for the loving conviction of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we will leave this place, yes, challenged, but not just challenged, but encouraged because God loves us enough to show us ourselves and show us what we need. And that you love us enough to not only show us what we need, but to supply what we need. May we go then convicted but celebrating your grace in our lives, allowing us to do this blessed work of passing the baton to the next generation. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.